Okay, if you would please open your Bible to Second Peter. I was about to say First Peter. Second Peter, chapter two. If uh, you weren't here last week and didn't hear the message that Ryan delivered, closing out chapter one, it is online uh, for you to listen to. I would encourage you to listen to it. Ryan delivered uh, an excellent sermon last week. And what he was uh, covering last week, he was, he was focusing on the truth that we need to pay attention to the Word of God like a lamp that is shining in the dark place. We have, um, as we're going to see today, we have all about us false teachers. Just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament era, Peter says there are false teachers in the current one, in the New Testament era, even coming up from within the church. And so we need to focus on the Word of God and pay attention to it like the lamp shining in the dark place that it is. And we need to do so until Jesus comes again. As Peter puts it, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, we need to stay focused on the Word of God. Because until Jesus comes, there's going to be many liars. And there are going to be many deceivers to twist the Word to their and and their followers' destruction. Um, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Start that with that and uh, then we'll read the text together. Father, we as this local church and as the global church need your help. We need your strength to persevere and to endure and to to hold fast to what is right and true. We cannot, Father, be faithful on our own. We are tempted in so many ways to to compromise your truth, to soften its message, even, Father, to deny it. And so, Father, I pray that we would be gripped today by your word as your word, not as the opinions of men, not just as information on a page, but the truth of God. I pray that we would be absolutely convicted Um, and convinced with unshakable conviction. Father, And help us to take a stand for the truth in public. Help us to defend the truth, to guard against error. And I pray that in love, we would help those who are deceived. So give to us, O Lord, your Holy Spirit, and all the help that we do need, according to your grace and mercy in Christ. In his name we pray. For his sake, amen. Let's begin with verse 19 of chapter 1. After speaking about the transfiguration, that change which occurred on the holy mountain in Jesus and the unveiling there of his glory, which foreshadows what will come at the end, Peter writes these words, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That is, the transfiguration confirmed it. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter has written this letter, as uh, I hope that you're becoming familiar with, to, to stir us to grow in the knowledge and godliness of Jesus so that we will escape the destructive end of false teaching and enter Christ's kingdom on the day of the Lord. We concentrated in the first chapter on the truth that everything that God requires of us in godliness, he provides for us in the gospel. It's through the sending of Jesus and our knowing him that we are given everything that we need to become godly. We have been given everything that we need to become like the Lord Jesus. And those who do become like him in works prove that they belong to him by grace. And the Bible says when he comes again, all those who have grown in godliness and become like him, Christ will richly welcome into his kingdom on that last day. These are critical truths. We dare not neglect them, let alone lose them. And yet we have within the church today all kinds of false teachers and false prophets who are going to counter these clear claims from the word of God. In Peter's day, the church was dealing with teachers who said that Jesus wasn't coming again and wasn't going to hold people to account. So where does the motive for godliness go then? If Jesus is not going to hold us to account for the way that we live our lives, what happens to the motive to godliness? Godliness is for the birds then. Forget godliness. We can live however we want to live and as, you know, even beyond this life, continue to live. I know that these truths make us uncomfortable. I mean, I, I would say that it is this doctrine of all the critical doctrines in the Bible. It's this one in particular, Christ coming again in judgment to hold us to account that would make us more uncomfortable than any other of the, what we might say would be the critical doctrines. I mean, which doctrine in our flesh would we just want to be untrue? Which doctrine do we tend to, to soften? and even to deny altogether. It's the doctrine that Christ is going to come again in judgment and hold us to account. Sometimes we preachers who do preach that Jesus is going to come again and there will be judgment and there will even be hell, sometimes we moan the fact that it wasn't always this way. It's almost like in the past, 
hell and, and, and the last judgment and, and the wrath of God were like the go-to topic and congregations were just ready and eager to accept it. And so in American history, there are uh, sermons like uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and sermons like there was a famous one called Payday Someday in more recent history. And although it's true that in times and places the the doctrine was more readily preached and even accepted, I think we have a very narrow view of history if we don't realize that neglect and denial of this doctrine, it's not a modern problem or a postmodern problem. And if it was just a modern or a postmodern problem, maybe there would be a correction, an easier correction to it. But the truth is, it's an ancient problem. It goes right back to the the very beginning. Whenever we have relaxed our grip on the truth, this doctrine has slipped out, slipped away from us. This is the doctrine that false prophets and false teachers have always denied. But listen, what Jesus claimed, we can't deny. Think about... Here's our, I want to show to you our, our ancient tendency to deny these things. Think of wicked Ahab. This is going back a long ways. Think of wicked Ahab, king of Israel, who aligned himself with godly Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And they were going to battle against the kingdom to the north of them, Syria. And so they wanted some kind of supernatural guidance on what the outcome of going to battle against the Syrians would be. And so Ahab called 400 prophets together. He inquired of them, and and they all said to the last, it's all going to be well with you. You're going to win. No problem. Victory is yours. You're the people of God. You've got this. Jehoshaphat, on the other hand, looked around and said, isn't there a single true prophet that we can call on? And Ahab said, yeah, there's one by the name of Micaiah. But I hate that guy. Because he never speaks good about me, but only evil. If you know Ahab, there was a good reason for that. But that's our tendency. We only want to hear the good. We don't want to hear the evil. We only want, you know, what boosts us up and not what makes us to be any less. In Jeremiah, there's a lot of passages that speak God's condemnation against the false prophets. The Lord said, the prophets have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it says in Jeremiah 23, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually, Tell me that this does not sound like today. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. And listen to this condemnation in Jeremiah 5. The prophets prophesy falsely and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? 
The prophets prophesy falsely, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? We need to know, and we always need to keep at the forefront of our thinking, reminding ourselves that there is going to be an end. It's not just going to continue on and on and on. It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And there is a day of the Lord coming when Jesus Christ comes again in power and glory to judge those who do not believe and to save those who do and who have become like Him in godliness. You see, ever since Eden, there has always been the lie that there will be no judgment for disobeying the word of the Lord. That we can live however we want to live and and still live on. That's what Satan said right in the beginning, isn't it? You will not die. You will not surely die, the devil says. And all these promises just make us feel safe. But here's also something the devil does and the false teachers too. Not only do they promise peace, but they cloak the promises in religious language. So we don't only feel safe, but in our sin, we actually feel holy. And so Satan said, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, tell me that's not a good thing. As the lamp that shines in the darkness of this age, we must pay attention to the prophetic word of God until the day of the Lord comes. Because until that day comes, there will be false teachers twisting this word to their and their followers' destruction. So this morning, as we get into this text, I want to give you a number of things, six things actually, that will, I think, um, help you to to realize and um, to be aware and on guard against the false teachers that exist in the church today. And I've alliterated these things for your help, for the sake of memory. Um, But let's begin back in verse 1. We'll read the first part of the verse again. Peter wrote, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And if you know the, the, the history of the Old Testament very well at all, you know that constantly amongst Israel, there were false prophets undermining uh, the true prophets and, and twisting the word of God and uh, selling the people on lies and empty promises. And Peter says it's going to be the same today. We we have to take that to heart. We have to realize it. There are, just because someone stands behind a pulpit in a church that claims the name evangelical doesn't mean that that person is a true teacher of the Word of God and a true prophet, so to speak. America is filled with false teachers. In fact, sad to say, But one of the main exports of the church in America is false teaching that has spread all over the world and caught up so many in its lies. So here's the first thing Peter says to us. The false teacher's presence and influence is definite. That's number one. They are definite. They will be here. And they will have strong influence And we must be on constant guard against them. It shouldn't have taken me by surprise, but it did take me by surprise 
that we have had false teachers come into Alls Chapel. We have had them sit in the congregation for months at a time and trying to, to sell us on false teaching. We've had it here. I'm not saying that any of those were members because they weren't, but we have had false teachers here. Listen to what Paul said. He had spent a number of years in the church of Ephesus and then he was, he was going to Jerusalem, parting from the Ephesian Christians and he was giving them final warning. This is the last time he was going to see them and he said to them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Listen to this. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be on your guard. Because their presence and their influence in the church today and locally is definite. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they are devious. Isn't it amazing what a receptive audience the false teachers find? It's amazing, it's shocking that they can say such ludicrous things and sell people on them. How do they do it? Look at the middle part of verse 1. It's because they secretly bring in destructive heresies. All the destructive heresies they bring, they bring in secretly. They are devious. How are they devious? Well, they are like the father of the false teachers himself. Their main tool is the Word of God. They wouldn't make any headway in the church if they didn't use the Word of God. But they have mastered the method of making the Bible say whatever they want it to say. But the Bible itself is their go-to tool. That's how devious they are. So I want to give you some encouragement. One thing that you need to watch for when you're listening to preaching, whether it's here or you know, on, on the radio or television or what have you, you need to watch for the point of the sermon being the point of the text. Now, sometimes it's necessary for a preacher to preach topically. He takes a theme from the Word of God, a principle or a truth, and he develops, he unfolds that topic using various scriptures. Sometimes that's necessary. But if that is the regular diet that they feed people on, it's a dangerous thing. Regularly, the point of the text needs to be the point of the sermon. The intention of the Word of God needs to be the intent of the message. That's why we go consecutively, verse by verse, through books and, and longer passages of Scripture. It's very important that you hold Ryan in the future to that standard. It must be expositional. Topical necessary sometimes. We've done it before. You might want to preach on, say, baptism, the Lord's Supper, or you know what constitutes the church. Or as we've done before, preach topically developing the theme of, of sex and sexuality as it's seen through the Bible, and so on. But regularly, it needs to be expositional. You need to insist on that. You need to hold him, me and him, to account on that. 
you must also learn how the revelation of the Bible unfolds. You must learn what the covenant promises of Scripture are and how they relate to one another and how those covenant promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You must also be aware of how you relate to all of those things and how you fit into the storyline wherever you might be in the storyline. Last week, Ryan used this analogy of um, many artists painting on one canvas to speak about the Word of God and the prophets and so on. We have many witnesses, but one key testimony. It concerns Jesus. Many contributors to this work, but all working together, even though they might be separated by hundreds of years. Yet each contribution contributes to this whole to make this beautiful portrait of Christ and salvation in Him and Him alone. You need to know how each artist contributes to the whole and what how each part relates to the whole. You say, that's going to take a long time and that's going to take a lot of work. Well, good. That, that's just the way it is. You can't avoid that. But it's not just hard work. It's the most joyful work to know the Word of God and know the God of the Word. The false teachers are devious and they're working hard. So we need to work hard. Don't be surprised when the false teachers will speak 30 minutes of truth for every 30 seconds of heresy. This has always been the way of Satan. To to take his lies, his poisonous lies which are at the core and wrap them completely in truth. There's a lot of the Bible to pull from to wrap the lie in. So be aware of that. And, and don't be surprised either when they don't come snarling. They're not going to come like that. They're going to be, they're going to be good old boys. They're going to be kind. They're going to be so nice. They're going to contribute good with their, their words and with their deeds. There's going to be some solid contributions along the way. That's the only way that they will be able to deceive. So be on guard. So number one, they're definite. They're going to be with us. Number two, they're devious. Number three, what drives them? It's evil desire. It's the third thing. They are driven by evil desire. Look at the beginning of verse 2. They're driven by sensuality. Look at the beginning of verse 3. They're driven by greed. So they are living for the pleasures of their own flesh. Do they serve people? Well, in some ways. But ultimately, they use people. They use the church. They're not interested in the well-being of the church. The church is just a means to an end. They will say whatever they need to say to, to give people whatever they want so the people will give them what they want. So Peter says in verse 3, in their greed they will exploit you with false words. The church is just a means to an end. They will use you. Why does he promise your best life now? 
so he can live his best life now. That's his motivation. The false teachers promise your health and wealth now so they can have their own health and wealth now. They're not, they're not captivated by Christ. They're captivated by what comforts they might get from him. Jesus is not their true hope. Jesus is not the end. Just like the church is a means to an end, Jesus is a means to an end for them. He is the means to the good life, their version of it. And so they will say whatever they need to say to get whatever they want because they are driven by evil desire. So we need to be, um, you know, false teaching can make, can, can take many shapes and forms. Will they, will the false teacher speak in doctrinal detail like Kenneth Copeland? Or will they speak very shallowly like a Joel Osteen? Will they speak much of Jesus or little of Jesus? Will they call down judgment or will they deny the judgment altogether? They will say whatever they need to say to get whatever they want. Number four. How far does this greed go? Look back at verse one. It goes this for, this far. To even denying the master who bought them. They are defiant. That's the fourth thing. They are defiant. They deny Jesus Christ. How do they deny and defy him? They deny the authority of his word. They take the plain meaning of the word of God and twist it in such a way that the meaning is up for grabs. The meaning is just whatever they want it to be. So they twist the plain meaning and empty the Bible of its power and give themselves complete power. They say, they can say all day long that they belong to him. But they prove by the proclamation of their word and the practice of their lives that their profession is false. Their profession is false. And they defy the Lord Jesus Christ. That Peter says they deny the master who bought them doesn't mean actually that they belong to Jesus. Okay, Earlier he made it clear that those who grow in godliness uh, confirm their calling and their election. So he's not saying that these are called and elect men and women too. He is saying that they profess to belong to him. But again, their practice and their preaching proves otherwise. So they defy Jesus. Number five, they are destructive. Look at what Peter says in verse two. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Their teaching about Jesus and his word is is destructive in the church, of course. But it's also destructive for what they cause other people outside of the church in the world to say about Jesus. Not only what they say about Jesus is destructive, but what they lead others to say about Christ is destructive. Because the world is watching and listening to the church. I think more than we tend to think is the case. They're watching, they're listening, and often they're mocking. Now, it's true that we are all sinners. We have sinned and we will sin and sin terribly all the way to glory. But the false teaching is the servant of sin. Their teaching serves sin. 
They don't just minimize sin or downplay sin. Listen to me. This is how dangerous this is and how wicked. Their teaching sanctifies sin. They sanctify ungodliness. They sanctify idolatry. They say it is right. They say idolatry is the will of God. Listen to Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They put personal happiness before true holiness and call their sin holy. But when we put, and this is not only true of them, they're not the only ones who are guilty of this. We can very easily be guilty of this ourselves. When we put personal happiness before holiness, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Christ will be seen as the servant of sin. That's what the world will say. When the world can see no difference in our doctrine from their doctrine, the way of truth will be blasphemed. When the world can see no difference between our deeds and their deeds, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And that's how the false teachers are so destructive. Last of all, let me recap these real quick. First of all, they are definite. Their presence and influence is definite. They will be here. Second, they are devious, and that's how they can get away with what they get away with. Third, what drives them, it's evil desire. Number four, how far will they go? They will go so far as to defy the Lord Jesus Christ. Number five, they are destructive. And then last of all, and justly, the false teachers are damned. It says at at the end of verse three, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Their end is destruction. Their day is far gone, and their night is at hand. They are closer to their destruction than when they first deceived. To put it that way, they are damned. If they were the only ones who were damned, we'd still be greatly concerned, but less grieved. What I'm saying is not only them, but also their followers who are not the deceivers, but the deceived are going to share in their destruction. And that what, that's what causes us the greatest grief mourning. This is why we must be on guard. This is why we can't just play nice and tolerate and accommodate And God forbid, partner with those who are false teachers. But it's true. Many pastors in the evangelical church are turning a blind eye to false teachers. They might call out the the most egregious examples amongst the false teachers, the most well-known and the most corrupt of them. But very often they turn a blind eye to the one who's just down the road to actually partner with them in... (laughs) ministry of the gospel. And for their indifference to the presence of false teachers, 
And because of their ignorance, the church is going to suffer. I don't want to play nice. We have to start being kind. Very often, I know this is hard, because when you're talking to someone who teaches these truths or has been sucked in by them, the tendency in so many is just, they just keep on blabbing. I mean, you can't get in a, a word because they don't want to hear. They only want to be heard. That makes it really difficult. But I don't think we can just nod along to get along all the time. We have to speak up. Where we can, we must speak up. We need to be steadfast in our courage and have a sincere heart of love and tell the truth. Now, there's one more thing that I want to give to you to, to help you in a matter of discernment. Because so far it's been pretty plain and I think easily understood. But here's a question that comes along with this matter. As we're to contend for the faith, what doctrines do we fight for? And how hard do we fight? I think it's an important question that we answer. You could put it this way. We fight for all of them to some degree, but not all of them to the same degree. Because some error will kill a church. Some error will kill an individual. But other errors, while not killing them, weaken them. And still other errors, even less, will only make you, you know, stub your toe on the way to glory, so to speak. So a few years ago, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this name, but I encourage you to be. Um, Al Moeller, who is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, wrote an article called A Call for Theological Triage in Christian Maturity. He says that a few years ago, he made a, a visit to the local ER, and being there, he says, alerted me to an intellectual tool that is most helpful in fulfilling our our theological responsibility. ER personnel practice triage in order to evaluate the the urgency of a medical situation. The word triage comes from the French word trier, which means to sort. And so the triage officer in the medical context, he says, is the frontline agent for deciding which patients need the most urgent treatment. Given the chaos of an emergency room reception area, someone must be armed with the medical expertise to make an immediate determination of medical priority. Which patients should be rushed into surgery? Which patients can wait for a less urgent examination? And then he says, the same discipline that brings order to the ER, that hectic arena, can also offer to us in the church great assistance as we defend truth in the present age. So he suggests three different levels of theological urgency. He calls them first-order doctrines, second-order, and third-order, each corresponding to a set of issues and theological priorities found in current doctrinal debates. First of all, you have the first-order doctrines, first-level theological issues, and that order would include the most essential and central doctrines to the Christian faith. That is, if we reject these doctrines, we're dead. Rejecting them 
will kill the church, will kill the individual. If we reject doctrines like the authority of Scripture, the Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Jesus, the reality of sin and judgment, His death for sinners and resurrection, justification by grace alone through faith alone. If we reject these doctrines, if we deny them, we end up denying Jesus Himself. We lose them, we lose Christianity. Second order doctrines are distinguished from those first order ones by the fact, he writes, that believing Christians may disagree on second order doctrines. Now the question is, what effect will they have on the church? Well, they may stunt a church's growth. Or they can just make it the church walk with a limp. Something like that. But I think ultimately, it depends on whether Jesus is diminished or not by the error. Uh, or I should say, how much he is diminished by the error. So it's second-order doctrines that are going to divide the people of God into different congregations and denominations. So, but we need to, we need to understand something. There's a lot of complexity here, but I want to try to make it simple. Um, a church can be wrong on second-order things, like, for example, the meaning of baptism. They can be wrong on the meaning of baptism, or they can be wrong on the role of the Holy Spirit today and still cling to Jesus. Okay? Third order issues. So first order, most essential, if we don't believe these things, they'll kill the church. Second order things, believing Christians can disagree on these things, but they'll separate us, I should say. The second order things will separate us into different congregations and denominations. Then the third order issues are doctrines over which Christians may disagree and still remain in close fellowship, still stick together in the local church. And so these things might be the very fine details of the Bible or matters of speculation. Christians can disagree on these things and walk together continually happily in the Lord as members of the same church. I just want to say this about um, this matter of contending for the faith. We must not let any doctrine diminish Jesus. Listen, you can't separate true doctrine from the true person of Christ. You have doctrine the doctrine of Christ, and the person of Christ. That is, knowledge about him and actual relationship with him. You can't separate the two, but you can distinguish the two. You can discern the difference between them, even as you can't break them apart. So here's the danger. People can love the doctrine about Jesus and not love Jesus himself. The knowledge can puff up. The knowledge can make proud. And so we must never let the knowledge, we must never let the teaching, the information, supplant Jesus, diminish Him in any respect. We need to be very careful about that. So for this reason, 
you can, you can agree, this church can agree with another church on all the first order, second order, and third order doctrines down to the last. And yet not be able to work with that church. Because they may put more weight on what they believe than on Jesus himself. And you know this is true when any doctrinal disagreement outside becomes a cage match. See? So we can't lose Christ. And there's another thing too. Even as we hold to the truth, we can't lose love. Because if we lose love, if we lose Jesus, we have nothing. If we lose love, we are nothing. The Pharisees had all their doctrinal ducks in a row. Perfect. Well, close anyway. They were quite orthodox. But functionally speaking, they were heretics. And any church or individual can have so many things right. First order, second order, third order, right down to their preferences. But if they don't have love, that person or that church is a functional heretic. So we must be so careful in contending for the truth. We must keep our eyes on Jesus himself. Hold fast to him. Our souls cling to him. And his right hand upholds us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for Jesus, your Son, and for giving to us the revelation of him, the perfect revelation of him in your holy word. I pray, Father, that we would hold fast to your word so that we will hold fast to Jesus. And I pray that there would be no difference between the two in our lives. Lord, may our knowledge not puff us up, but humble us. I pray that we wouldn't hold others in contempt, but I pray that the truth would move us to compassion. And I pray, Father, that when the time comes, this church would stand for the truth, but never in a quarreling way. We would defend it. We would not compromise it. We would speak the truth. But to your glory, not to our glory. And Father, I pray that the false teachers that are within this larger community, this parish, this North Louisiana, I pray that their false teaching would be exposed. It would be known. And I pray that they would repent. Lord, we pray especially for those deceived. Those who are captured by that darkness. Lord, by your light, save them. And please use us to save them. May our hearts, because of your great love, may our hearts be moved to love them and to lay our lives down for them to pour ourselves into them, to help them, to bring them to the truth. 
Lord, I thank you for this church family, for the generations that have been here holding fast to truth. May it always be that way until Jesus comes. In his name we pray, amen.